We're going to be reading a compilation of four stories out of Mark chapter 10 this evening. We'll be starting in verse 13 and reading through verse 45. The question at hand that ties these stories together is a question of entrance into the kingdom of God. How do we enter the kingdom of God? It's also called inheriting eternal life in these stories. It's also called having treasure in heaven or being saved. So let us read God's word from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 45. Hear God's word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. 
And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. In these four stories, we find two improper approaches to entrance in the kingdom, and then we find two proper approaches to the kingdom. It is one proper approach with two elements. Two improper approaches, and then one proper approach with two elements. We'll start first with the rich man. The rich man, starting in verse 17. The man who comes by goodness to Jesus and tries to enter the kingdom of God by goodness. He is eager to attain a goodness that is worthy of heaven. He is eager and he is sincere. You can see the way he approaches Jesus. He's also the kind of guy, maybe you know this kind of person, who seems to have everything together. Respectable, winsome, wealthy, a good person, liked by many, envied by all, someone who doesn't seem to need anything. That's this man. And then he comes to Jesus and calls him the good teacher. He calls him good. Now, the understanding of good is critical. What he means by good is critical for our understanding the rest of this interaction. What does he mean by good? Jesus even asks him, why do you call me good? He means good in his own kind of good, a self-based good, a put together an impressive, maybe even deserving of heavenly reward kind of goodness. Here we can conclude that the rich man is not thinking of good in the godly meaning of the word goodness, but instead he calls Jesus good for all that Jesus has accomplished as a man. He views Jesus as someone who possesses a goodness that maybe he could likewise achieve. Oh, you're a good teacher. May I be like you. What must I do to inherit this kingdom of which you speak? A goodness that this man is hoping Jesus could rub off on him to increase his own appeal and his own worthiness. And Jesus' response is in line with this understanding of good. He says, no one is good except God alone. This does not deny that Jesus is good. This also does not deny that Jesus is God. Instead, Jesus is simply answering this man in the way that the man intended his question. He, he asked it with the intent to attain his own goodness, and so Jesus answered, you can't. There is no man-based goodness. There is only God who is good. Jesus seems to be saying to him, you cannot attain your own goodness, my dear friend, if that's what you're looking for. Only God is good. Surrounding this story, Mark is telling us that goodness is a gift. It's a gift by what, that, which, that we receive in order to enter the kingdom of God. And in the rest of this interaction, Jesus goes straight to the man's heart. Jesus loves this man, Mark tells us. 
so much that he's willing to directly call out the obstacle in his heart. This man is sincere. Jesus doesn't treat him like he treats the Pharisees as those who are malicious. He cares deeply, sees that this man is sincere. And so he gives him a straightforward answer. He starts talking about what the man is familiar with. He says, oh, you you know how to keep the law, so let's start there. You know the Ten Commandments. It's divided into two parts. The first table, Commandments 1 through 4, is how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Commandments 5 through 10 are how to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus lists for him the second half. How to love your neighbor as yourself. He starts with identifying the external law that the man seems to be really good at and dependent on. Now, you may know that the 10th commandment is do not covet. Jesus instead says to him, do not defraud. What he's done is actually chosen an outward manifestation of the inward heart change that that command is getting at and is proving to the man that you may be able to keep the externals, but there are heart conditions that ought to go along with them. And so he chooses one that's very difficult. It's actually... Um, not the 10th, but he lists it last. He says, also, honor your father and your mother. This is the only one that Jesus lists for this man that is not a negative command. Sometimes it's easier to, to follow the negative commands to say, I've not done this, but have we truly honored our father and our mother? Perhaps the man has truly done a good job, or maybe he simply heard Jesus say, do not dishonor your father and mother. Our Westminster standards say that this honoring of father and mother is due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer, and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, and bearing with them in their infirmities, and covering them with love. The man hears these commands, and he actually feels good about himself. He feels affirmed. All these, teacher, I have kept. Am I on the right track? Am I almost there? But Jesus then moves in even deeper into the internal condition of the heart. He gives a command that cuts straight to the man's heart. He says, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come, follow me. He says this is one thing. One thing you lack, to go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. If the man is able to do this one thing, then it would actually reflect a proper heart condition for all ten commandments. It would show a proper approach to God. It would show that he has no more attachments or gods in this world, but follows Jesus alone. So the question we're all probably asking ourselves is, do I have to sell everything I own and give it to the poor? Well, I do want to say there's more to the application here than just simply be willing to give up your wealth. If that's all that Jesus is saying, then the disciples would not have been shocked. There's more than just be willing to part with your money. And it's true, Jesus did not command all of his disciples to sell everything that they had. They regularly meet in Peter and Andrew's house. They still retain their their physical belongings to some extent. But if you are the one asking the question, do I have to sell all my things? If you're afraid that you may need to get rid of your material wealth, then you might be the exact person to whom Jesus would give this command. 
Anyone who fears such a separation from this world, from the things of this world, should be warned that money is very quickly an idol. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Wealth is a heart issue. The love of money is certainly tragic. But we also have to consider here in this room, we're all rich by the literal materialistic standards that were likely in the minds of the hearers in the story. It's very likely that many of us have more than this rich man did. We live in an especially extravagant and excessive society. The longing for money, listen to this, the longing for money is equally dangerous. Whether the jackpot rests in a man's hands or if the bounty never actually becomes his, but still rests in his lusts. That longing for money is equally dangerous whether you possess it or don't possess the money. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether you call yourself rich by our standards today or poor by our standards today. This biblical command of Jesus is for you. And the warning that it is difficult for the rich to enter heaven ought to make us all pause and listen to what Jesus is saying. Wealth is a heart issue, but wealth also has unique obstacles and unique inclinations towards sin that come with possessing great wealth. Again, Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is a generalization because wealth is a distraction from our real need. It makes us think we don't have a real need because we seem to have enough stuff that we can mask over the deeper longings. And wealth gives us a false sense of value apart from Christ. It makes us think that we are worth more than others are if we have more money than they are. And we don't then find our identity in Christ, but in the number of zeros that follow the digits in our bank account. And wealth is a comfort that will destroy us. In the end, it will rust. And if we're hoping in it, our hope will also fall apart with money. No matter what the culture says about the goodness of wealth, and no matter the fleeting value and image that come with great possessions, there is no external accomplishment of the moral or monetary kind that can earn a spot in heaven. Trying to get to heaven that way would be like trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, you may have heard that the eye of a needle was supposedly the name of a gate in the city wall in the first century. That is not true. That is an interpretation added in the 11th century to try to soften the blow of this statement. Jesus is saying the largest known mammal in that part of the world, the camel, try to fit it through the smallest opening you can conceive of, the eye of a needle, that's how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And so the disciples say, then who can be saved? This is crazy, Jesus. And his answer is, God saves. It is possible for God to save anyone, even a man whose heart has been held captive by the clutches of great wealth. But on our own, we are all doomed to become slaves of the attractions and distractions of the world. But God saves. With God, it is possible. On your own, your wealth will not get you into heaven. Only God saves. By God, we can let go of. We can abandon all these weights of the world, these malicious idols, and instead we receive a consistent, reliable, dependable, eternally valuable righteousness from God himself that Jesus gives to his people. It's given by Jesus, applied by the Spirit, received by faith. 
With God, all things are possible. Let's jump ahead to the discussion that the disciples had. Another improper approach to trying to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples came not based on their goodness, but they came in pursuit of honor. Their main flaw is that they're looking for their pat on the back. They're looking for their treasure. Peter began to say to Jesus, after the weightiness of this conversation, Peter pipes up and says, see, we've left everything and followed you. He's probably thinking about that line that Jesus had snuck into that conversation with the rich man where he said, and you will have treasure in heaven. And Peter's saying, so where's our treasure? We've given it all up for you. Where's our treasure? And Jesus answers once again, you still missed it. You're looking for the wrong kind of treasure and it's still not about you. True, you will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's children and lands. The blessing that God gives his people in the church is a hundredfold what we have on our own. What we have in Christ is a hundredfold what we have on our own. The best that the world has to offer is not, does not compare to what we have in Christ. And Jesus, of course, is not talking of material wealth here. He's talking about deep blessings in Christ and in the church. But he also summarizes these, these material things which he uses to explain the spiritual blessings. He, he summarizes this discussion of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers with persecutions, he says. He's trying to shift their expectation. Don't do this expecting to have lots and lots more. Do this knowing that persecution is going to come. It's going to be hard. To give up the... the comforts of the world is not going to be an easy task and you will be persecuted. He's telling them your perspective on life needs to change. And what he does, he actually helps them with that perspective change. And he says, you're going to receive in the age to come eternal life. In the age to come, eternal life. There's the great reward. We're going to receive eternal life. And that eternal life has begun now, and we're going to see it in its fullness when Christ returns in the age to come. Our real treasure is coming. And we will be fully satisfied when we see our God. And nothing else in the whole created world will matter compared to the soul-satisfying rest and joy and completion that we have in His presence. As the psalmist says, I have no good apart from you, O God. And on that day, we will receive great riches. But if that's why you're doing this, you're still missing the point. Because all those riches would be given right back to the king who deserves them. All of our treasures, we will return. We'll give to him the glory and the wealth and the riches and the power and the honor. We're going to give it all to the lamb who sits on the throne. We're going to sing his praise. And there is no better place to be. And then the disciples continue in their pursuit of honor. As James and John start discussing, well, they come to Jesus secretly, kind of pull them aside. They're fighting for their preeminence. And they say, hey, can we, can we sit one on your right hand, one on your left hand? The right hand is one of second in power. The left hand is one of, of counsel. Can we be your next in power? Have they really missed it so boldly? Have they really... 
the guts that it takes to come to Jesus and ask, to sit beside him when he comes into his power. But they are consistent because we've heard them already arguing about who's the greatest in chapter 9. James and John just beat everyone else to the punch. Everybody else was going to ask. That's why they're indignant. And the reason they ask now has to do with the fact in verse 32. Maybe you picked up on this. It's a strange, seems to be a strange turn of events. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. What were they amazed at? It doesn't say Jesus was speed walking. We don't, we're not given a whole lot of context here, but Luke tells us more. Jesus was headed intently to Jerusalem. What do you think people are going to be thinking when the Messiah is headed to Jerusalem at the Passover? The Messiah that they expect to become a military revolutionist. And here Jesus is intently headed to Jerusalem and everybody's amazed and they're afraid. They think they're about to witness a revolution in Jerusalem. They think that this Messiah is coming to his throne. And that's why they ask now, can we be there beside you once you take over? Jesus responds, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The upside down values of this kingdom. If you're seeking the honor and the wealth and the glory and the the reputation, Jesus says that is not what greatness is. You remember when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God, who's at his right hand and who's at his left? Two criminals hanging there beside him. The very least by all human standards. And we know one of them was that day with Christ in paradise. You look at the disciples, you see their ebb and flow of their faith, their grand statements, and then they, they turn away. And, and I, I can't help but see myself in them. We too get distracted by the potential for glory and achievement that we see before us. We too confess Jesus to be the Christ and we mean it as far as we're able. And then we toil with the fickle lures of this earth. We need the reminders that Jesus and Mark give to us in this passage. And that's where we see Mark weaving together what Jesus has said as a very timely reminder for fickle hearts like ours, like the disciples, like the rich man. Here's the proper approach. Mark tells us where, or specifically whom, to approach. And then how to approach. Whom to approach and how to approach. The one to whom we approach is the servant king. We see this in verses 33 and 34. Jesus tells them why he's going up to Jerusalem. Not to overthrow the government, but to give himself up. He's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they're going to condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's the one to whom we look. Because Mark is going to tell us that is where salvation is found. That's where your sin is paid for. When Jesus died and when he rose, that's where the victory is won. He's the one to whom we look. And he calls himself very intentionally here in verse 33, the Son of Man. You remember the Son of Man from Daniel 7? The Son of Man is headed toward unmatched glory, dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. 
And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All these will serve him. And then Jesus says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the sufferer who gives his life. This Jesus has already foretold them three times now in the Gospel of Mark. And it's the center of these stories today. This is where we look for life. This is where we look for value. This is where true honor is found in a sufferer who made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. That's why we look like clowns to the world. As we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and as we run to Christ, and that's why we're the nobodies. Nobodies to the world as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. It's because we have a Savior who did that for us too. And he will rise. As he rose from the dead and confirmed his coming glorious reign, he also will return with power that the world can't even conceive of. He will be the reigning son of man, the son of God. That's the one to whom we come. And how do we come? Well, go ahead and tell you, we don't come like the rich man, seeking to be good enough, seeking to follow enough commands or to bring enough monetary goodness to impress God. We also don't come like the disciples, seeking that our own glory would be exalted. We come like a child. That's what we find in the first few verses, verses 13 through 17, excuse me, through 16. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we come immature. This doesn't mean that we come innocent. The world views children as innocent. We know they're not innocent. Listen to verses 14, 15, and 16. But when Jesus saw that the disciples were hindering the children, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This seems to be the thesis statement of the following stories. Here's how you do it, and then here's how you don't. Come like a child. Here's what I think it means to come like a child. One commentator says this. Unselfconscious, unselfconscious, receptive, and I love this last one, content to be dependent on others' care and bounty. Are you ever content to be dependent on somebody else? We just want to be independent. We want to build our own kingdoms on our own. How do we become the last, the servant, the slave of all? How do we come like a child? Well, we come, first of all, empty-handed. You have nothing to contribute to your salvation. Your keeping of the Ten Commandments cannot save you. Come empty-handed. Don't try to impress God with all that you have accumulated on this earth. You come empty-handed like a child. As many of you know, Anjanette and I now have a son. He has not contributed anything to us. He is empty-handed all the time. I also think 
Unselfconscious is a really helpful way to put this. You're not worried about how you appear, what other people think of you. You're more concerned about the things around you, specifically the Lord your God and your neighbors. You're concerned about the kingdom, contrasted with the disciples here, who were only concerned about their honor and ascending to power. And then a child is receptive. When we give Elliot food, he takes it. We receive what God has given us by faith. When we believe what Jesus has done, we take what he has given us. We come empty handed and say, I have nothing to offer you, but I will take all that you give me. And we receive and we rest upon him alone. With man on our own, it's impossible, but with God, it is all possible. So he's the one that we trust. He's the one to whom we look. And let's talk again about being content to be dependent on others' care and bounty. This is the opposite of the American dream. If you're dependent on somebody, if you owe somebody something, then you feel like you are less than. You have to build your own kingdom, get the high-paying job, build yourself a reputation, get the likes, get the follows online. When I read this passage, I, I, what comes into mind, maybe this does for you, is just the image of a child running with no inhibitions, just running into the arms of a parent. I want to close here with a filled out version of that. A parable of a sort, a story. Consider a society that values brown hair above all else. Very few have brown hair. Most, unfortunately, in this society have red hair. (laughs) Those with brown hair are elevated by their peers and by their society as the superiors of society treated with special honor, doors held for them, seats of honor surrendered to them. At school, the brown-haired children have the best seats, the finest copies of the textbooks, gold-leaf name tags, and special tutors at all times. Now imagine two little girls are born with brown hair on the same day into this world of redheads. On their first day of school, they get a taste of society's special treatment toward them. One girl likes the attention, and she begins to think differently about herself as a result. And when she comes home, she brings her new shiny gifts and her new expectations. She sets the accolades and the distinguished trinkets on her dresser to stare at them. And when she scrapes her knee, she's frustrated by the new existence of difficulty and pain because she's getting used to the special treatment. How could such a thing happen to a brown-haired girl like her? She expects her parents to start treating her specially too. And so she begins the slow descent into self-seeking glory. The other girl, she receives the same treatment at school, but she doesn't let it go to her head or to her heart. It puzzles her, actually, knowing that there is nothing about her brown hair that makes her any different. When she goes home after a day at school, maybe it's a good day, or maybe she too has fallen and scraped her knee or received mean words from a friend or in some other way has a wounded heart. But when she gets home and she sees her father, nothing gives her greater joy 
She runs to her father who loves her with with a love far richer than anything that society could ever dream of giving her. And she throws off all her school bags with all the shiny trinkets, leaves them in the dirt and flings herself empty handed into the arms of her father because she trusts her dad. She knows who she truly is in his arms. He is enough. His embrace fixes the pains, heightens the joys of the day. And she has forgotten that she has brown hair. Would we approach our Savior like that? Forgetting all these societal standards and expectations and forgetting to bring anything, but being filled fully with the joy that it is to be in the presence of our Savior, to receive what He gives us, to be welcomed into His embrace, to approach Him with faith. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And these last ones will be first and great, just as their Savior is. Let's pray. Thank you, gracious Heavenly Father, for welcoming us into your arms with absolutely nothing to offer. Would we not be like the rich man dependent on his good works And would we not have our hearts entangled in the things of the world? Would we not seek our own honor like the disciples? Would we come like children with nothing to offer, but only eager reception of the goodness that Jesus gives to us? Because there and only there we have hope. Would that encourage us this day and every day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.